What an anthem. Now I'm looking for the sky to save me, looking for a sign of life. With us from Opanaki, we have uh, Katrina. Kia ora, Katrina. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, Ellie, Martin. How are you all doing? <laughs> kia ora, kia ora. Well, well, how are you? Did it take you long to decode the lyrics to this one? No, I recognised the lyrics as soon as you said them, and then I just had to keep sort of singing them over and over again until, frankly, you were driving me crazy. <laughs> uh, but, then, but then it just came, so that was good. Isn't it? There's something about the song. It's just such a, it's a great Monday afternoon anthem, isn't it? It is. It's, um, I've been, well, now that I'm a bit sick of it now because I've been singing it over and over, but it is a great song. I love Dave Grohl. I love, yeah. I just, he's cool as. <laughs> Absolutely, Katrina. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the panel this afternoon. Kia ora. Mon plaisir. Au revoir. <laughs> and, and by the way, Dave, uh, Dave Grohl said that Learn to Fly was, uh, uh because a lot of people said it was some sort of inspirational song. You know, now I'm looking for the sky to save me. But Dave Grohl said learning to fly was about, guess what, wanting to learn to fly. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, he said, I'm, I, I wanted to learn how to be a pilot. So that's a bit of a downer, but um, <sighs> it's just an amazing song, isn't it, Martin Bosley? Oh, as you said, anthemic, absolutely brilliant. You know, yep. Taylor Hawkins at his finest. Uh, very good. Uh, 24 to 5, the panel RNZ National. Oh, gosh, no response. Um, I used to pester mum when it rained to go out in my trunks and splash in the gutter. Uh, I am 75. I swim in the sea all year round, and I'm fitter than any fiddle, says John. Yes, she has a point. Good on her for commenting, the stranger, and good on you, Wallace, for taking the advice on board. Um, for God's sake, Ellie... When's the last time you took a small child out in the rain? How unrealistic and out of touch not about to the say rain. the it's child not about the rain. has no choice in wearing the jacket. What if they took it off in the middle of the walk? Get real, Ellie. Ooh. Ooh. Well, if the, kid, if the child took it off in the middle of the walk, you'd say, put the jacket back on, otherwise we're going home. Jacket doesn't go back on, you go home. And it's not just about rain. We're not in tropical Auckland here. Dr. Roe Parter, we were in Christchurch in late May. It's not tropical. Okay. The panel, RNZ So there. Ellie Jones and Martin, <laughs> Martin Bosley. Yeah, big response uh, on that. Uh, nice to have you come here today. The tragedy in Newtown, Wellington, last week was, has sparked new scrutiny of fire regulations and a government review of rules around short-term accommodation. Uh, but in the much bigger growth area of infill housing, terrace and townhouses and the like, the regulations have not kept pace with the government's rush to change the law last year to allow intensification to combat the housing crisis, reports RNZ. And our guest this afternoon says everything has got a bit more complicated and the short-term sectors stay more, sorry, and the short-term stay sector a little more fragmented. There is... No national register of boarding houses. Claire Aspinall is a lecturer researcher at Hea Kainga Oranga Housing and Health Research Programme at the University of Otago, Wellington. Uh, Claire, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. And you're also Vice Chair uh, Board of Trustees at Dwell Housing Trust. And can I just raise this first? Because you've been in Wellington at the opening for uh, the Dwell Housing Trust in Wellington today. So, must be pretty mixed emotions there today, Claire. Yeah, it's it's been a celebration today, but of course, um, set against that backdrop 
of some very, very sad news in Wellington, and I've been meeting with people today um, that over the years have, have worked um, to advocate for a better standards and improving housing. And, yeah, so it's very much to mixed emotions. Can I just bring in that issue, because many people might not know that, that um, I was quite surprised that there is no national register of boarding houses. So, for example, in Auckland it's said to be around 400, but that's a guess. It could be anything clear. Yeah, the registers was an idea that was declined um, to take forward. So, as you're correct, um, in Auckland, in Wellington, in different centres, unless people declare they're a boarding house or they're known to authorities, then it is very much an estimate. Is that something that needs to change? Um, Over the years, I've you know, maintained that I believe a registration of boarding houses is an appropriate uh, thing to have um, for various reasons. Um, that hasn't been the decision that's been made over the years. But I'd still think a register um, for each, at least at the local level, could be helpful for councils. It could be helpful for a number of reasons. Yeah, let's uh, go around the panel. Well, Martin, you're in Wellington as well. Let's bring you in. Well, yeah. Well, I actually lived literally just around the corner from yeah. the Lopers Lodge up until a few years ago. And... Every time I walked past it, I used to think I used to think it was abandoned. To be honest, just looking at the state of the place. Um, so when I heard that it was on fire, I was like, oh, "There's actually people living in there." Um, sorry, greetings, um, Claire. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I was amazed that there's no register of uh, of, the, of of these boarding houses, especially. I mean, given that we're now using them as sort of state housing, and so these people are there, they're, they're part of the the system, as it were. Surely, that these places are being registered and inspected should be, you know, why are we even talking about it? Should be a thing, shouldn't it? How do we yeah, know? I, mean, how do we, I we, we, don't, agree. we don't know where these people are. We don't know the conditions that they're living in. You know, you, you read the stories about what these places are like, and you go, "We're putting people here." Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there is a warrant of fitness inspection, um, which fire an independent fire safety inspector does, and by all accounts, you know, places comply with these and these are placed Um, but whether the actual regulation is of a high enough standard or not is is something that will be discussed in more detail in future Uh, Mm. Ellie Well it's just another one of those situations that absolutely beggars belief, I agree with Martin, this is just an absolute no brainer um, as far as having a register goes, I mean, I'm assuming that emergency housing, uh, that they are recorded, that there is a record of where the emergency housing is. I imagine, Claire, that the census may help inform this because there's a question on that that, that asks, you know, where do you live? And boarding houses is one of those. Why do you think that what, you know, it seems to be such a no-brainer and something that could reasonably easily be fixed? Why hasn't it been? Yeah, I mean, you are correct. Um, There definitely is a register and the census is one of the ways that those buildings are identified and people have an opt-in option in terms of if it's privately run boarding houses. Um, And certainly if people are accessing transitional and emergency housing through any of the government agencies, they're listed. Um, there's There's a range of reasons and over the years I've certainly met with officials and colleagues of mine at Hei Kainga Oranga have submitted to say 
Um, there should be a register. There sh- you know, we, we wanted, um, in a similar way that property managers are now required to be registered or licensed, we advocated that there should be licensing even of people right. who manage Absolutely. boarding houses. But why um, wouldn't there be? I, I don't understand why there wouldn't be. Is it because mm. it's in the too hard basket? Is it expensive to maintain and manage? Yeah. What, what are the reasons you're given? Yeah, I mean, the reasons at the time when I spoke to officials was that they believed, and I don't agree with this because this wasn't what my research found, that the majority of places are compliant and they're of reasonable standard and that um, it would be an onerous and costly um, process. So it was exactly that. It was cost. One of the the other things that we hear, though, right, or that we're reading is that, that, that relatively these tenants have got no rights. Um, they can be evicted within 28 days with no notice. Uh, even So, you know, they're unlikely to complain about the state of the place if they know that if they do complain, they, they're, just, they're just gone. Uh, you know, and, and where are they going to go? Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree with you, Martin, and that is certainly what my research found, and it's certainly what advocates and people working, um, supporting people in boarding houses tell us. People um, have lesser tenancy rights under the, mm. the RTA. Right. Um, and it is a complaint-based system, and for exactly the reason, the power dynamic um, that you talked about, people don't tend to... Um, don't say anything, right? Yeah. Well, this issue is certainly in the focus. Just finally, Claire, uh, before you go, um, you, you did mention that uh, short-term accommodation and the regulations that go with it, they are a bit uh, haphazard, um, so they're not up to spec for the modern day? Uh, I would say no. And I'm, I mean, obviously I'm interested in health. So from my perspective, that's where I come from. And um, I, I'd say no, and I would argue that they need to be strengthened and that there will be a cost attached to that. But I think we pay in different ways um, for the lack of standards currently. Um, and insurance premiums, etc., and poor quality, and then People going to hospital is, is a cost. Nice to have you on the programme, Claire. Mm. Kira, Thanks, Claire. Appreciate your time. Yeah. That is Claire Aspinall, uh, research at Hekainga Oranga Housing and Health Research Programme. Meanwhile, it's just rolling in, isn't it, uh, the feedback regarding um, whether or not you should say something uh, when you're out on a walk with your children. Uh, another one here. As a young, well-educated mum, I took my day old days old baby to do some essential shopping during an English winter an older woman admonished me for saying that baby should not be out without a hat on I was humiliated and she was right despite being in front in a front pack it wasn't adequate it was my first lesson in how little I knew we all benefit by parking our pride is this person's view. Um, mm. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Well, an eight-year battle to trademark Manuka honey has finally come to a close. Back in 2015, the Manuka Honey Appellation Society applied to have Manuka honey registered as a trademark of Aotearoa New Zealand. Once it was formally accepted, the Australian Manuka Honey Association opposed the idea. And now the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand has declared their ruling, refusing the application. To break it down for us, we are joined by patent and trademark attorney Kate Duckworth. Kia ora, Kate. 
Kira Wallace. Nice to be on your show again. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you on, and many listening to this will well be surprised by this. Here's what one person said on Twitter. If France can have champagne, Greece can have feta, and if Switzerland can trademark um, uh, Matterhorn, recent Toblerone event, why isn't today our Māori exclusive to Aotearoa and our products? Kate? I know. It's a, it's a disappointing result, and it is difficult to understand. This was 171 pages of analysis with lots of evidence provided by both parties. And to, to break it down, what the hearings officer decided who heard this opposition was that the particular plant that the neck comes from to make the honey is a native plant to both New Zealand and Australia, and that's Leptospernum scoparium. So it really comes down to a scientific finding that this particular manuka plant is not unique to New Zealand. So therefore, manuka honey uh, is something that can legitimately be made in Australia and called by that name, even though it is a, a Māori name. So it, it's not something that sits well with us here in New Zealand, I think. Gosh, yeah. Uh, Ellie? Yeah, I, I looked at this as well, and I didn't realise that the plant was... Uh, you know, grew in Australia and New Zealand. And interestingly, it's European honeybees that actually, you know, make this stuff as well. So it's a real mixture. I guess my question, Kate, is how, you know, sparkling wine is what you call it if it's not uh, made in the Champagne region. Champagne mm. is what you call it. It's the same thing, but it's made in the Champagne region. Why does that not translate here that you can call it Manuka honey yes. in New Zealand because that's Pereo? It's the same sort of thing as the honey in Australia. They can call it whatever they like, but they can't call it manuka. Why is that not um, a, a rational argument? Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent question. It's a difficult area of law. If I can make a contrast there, in Australia, the champagne houses in France were not able to protect the name in Australia, but they were in New Zealand. Oh, really? So the ship had been considered to have sailed in Australia there that the public didn't recognise Champagne or Champagne to designate only wine from that region in France. The, the Australians used it sort of homogeneously to refer to any sparkling wine. In New Zealand, the evidence was different that New Zealanders did recognise it. So this is an example of where we get these nuances that attitude can only mean... Um, from Greece, it really all depends on how the market perceives it. I see. Gosh, Martin, just shows we're a quality market over, over those Australians. We know we know our stuff here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure you understand it well, Martin. I do, Kate. I do indeed. But I was going to use the same analogy, actually, that that, that Ali used, which is you know, like, um, champagne is made up of many grapes, one of which is like Chardonnay, you know, and mm. it's the same thing, right? Yeah, but we can't call it champagne. But you've you know asked and answered that you know, that question. I just surely you know they don't call it Monica in Australia. They must call it something else, right? That that's why, why, why the Sorry. Yeah, the decision notes that when uh, the rise and rise of Manuka honey is when the Australian Honey Association latched on and started using that name. Ah. So I think that's another difficult aspect for New Zealanders to accept is that 
it's been quite a late adoption by the Australians based on the success of the New Zealand yeah, Honey Association and its use of manuka. The Pavlova Wars yeah. all over again. But. The well, uh, the uh, uh, New Zealanders are uh, the New Zealand manuka industry is deeply disappointed by this case. There's still a 20 day period where they could appeal. Do you That's think right. they will? Is there a point? Uh, what 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 can you, as a, a trademark attorney, anticipate here? Yeah, well, it costs a lot of money. It's difficult. It's time-consuming. Clients generally don't like being locked in these legal processes. But I would say do everything you can to to try and claw back um, that word manuka for honey. Um, you've got to take every chance you've got at this stage because once, you know once it's gone, it's gone. Mm. But that's yes. effectively what the hearings officer said was you know it's it's too late. It, it's gone, but. By goodness, it's you know, the hearings officer recognises that it's Taonga and it has Taonga status in New Zealand. Yeah. So let's fight for that. Good on you, Kate, and thank you for those uh, words there. That's Kate Duckworth there, patent and trademark attorney. We haven't come to the other feedback. Uh, we'll have to sort of uh, square it away for the Friday mailbag, but um, uh, a lot of response regarding lawns. Um, uh, <laughs> Martin Bolte said he's going to grow his in the streets, uh, and I say, no, Wallace, you're a lawn snob. Lawns are a disgusting blight on the environment, so there you go. Martin oh. says, love the lawn messaging, wish you were a Christchurch councillor. And um, another one here for Ali. I'm a community mental health nurse, Wallace. We have a doctor for two days a week to serve a population of 60,000 for FTE when we need 2.3 FTE, which which is what we're funded for. We are also short on nurses. This is hard. So thank you for your responses this afternoon. I do appreciate it. Have you ever been to a lecture or a talk of some kind and sat through the good old audience Q&A? If so, it's likely that for every insightful question, there was rather cringy one just around the corner. Or not even a question, more of a statement upon statement. Well, someone who has moderated plenty of these kinds of Q&As is a book editor for Spinoff and founder of Verb Wellington. Claire, maybe. Claire, great to have you on. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. I just read your <laughs> your piece and spin off, <laughs> and as a person who has moderated, moderated, let me tell you, many a panel uh, in a writers' festival and otherwise, I couldn't have related more to any piece I've written read in the last year. Why do people not ask questions? They stand up and decide to make statements. Well, they do. <laughs> And I think um, some of the, the reasons for that comes down to nerves. I do think that it is quite scary to talk in front of a, a bunch of people. Fair and I point. think when that happens, yeah, you, you kind of lose your, your way a bit. And I also think um, one of the pieces of advice um, I gave in, that, in the spin-off piece was to channel your inner child and just get to the curious mm. bit and just ask that. And I think kids are great at asking questions and adults sometimes perhaps overthink it and worry about how they come across more than just focusing on the question I love itself. it. The directness of that child children's question, eh? just simple and to the point, yeah. Ellie Jones. Absolutely. Claire, this is gold. I mean, I'm a, a lot like Wallace and things that I've moderated when I've been a community board chair, uh, Q&As after movies, for example, and things like that. And I'm going to take this to the next community board meetings and give it to, to our chair. It's, it's, it's bloody, it's 
brilliant, you know. And the hardest thing is, and Martin, you'll appreciate this too, is the hardest thing is when someone stands up and starts this massive preamble, at what point <laughs> is it mm. appropriate to step in and go, and sorry, your question is? <laughs> because, um, you know, you don't want to appear rude and dismissive, but at the same time, a lot of people want you to get on with it. Yeah. How do you do that, Claire? How, how do you suggest someone finds their in? Well, you know, I I have been in a situation where I've really had to cut people off because the thing is time time is ticking in those situations. Yes. There's often quite a few questions and you actually do have to be a little bit brutal sometimes and say thank you for your contribution but we need to get we need to move it on. So but I have mm. to say I'd recently just this weekend went to the Auckland Writers Festival and I can say from report that the questions were on the whole pretty good. I don't oh, know great. if everyone had read the article but the um, but the questions were snappy and and mostly really insightful. So, so maybe we're getting better. John says, why should audience members not converse with panelists? Why must it always be a question? Well, you address this in the wonderful piece in the spin-off here. You say that there is actually a time to go uh, to the book signing, and you can um, have a, a <laughs> DNM there, Martin Bosley. I, 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 I um this is absolutely brilliant, Claire. I, lo- I loved reading this. It was absolutely brilliant. I thought there's one thing that was missing, though, and that was um, it's not about you. Uh, some yeah. people stand up here and they relate everything back to their own experience and themselves, and you go, this, this is not the forum for you to be talking about yourself, your own experience here. Um, exactly. what, what about the I mean, I was um, the idea of, like, of submitting your questions first so you know, there's, a, there's a degree of control for the moderator about it as to what questions are coming up so it's you know it's kind of been good question shortened first you know is that is that i mean is that a, is that a thing that's possible yeah i've seen that done before and i think it's really great actually i've seen it done where um a good friend of mine joe randerson who has also um chaired a lot of panels she gets people to write the questions down mm. someone clicks them up and then she can read them and, and decide which ones to ask and i think that's a really great way to do it Sometimes it's nice to have a mix, though, isn't it, uh, Claire? Because sometimes that um, that spontaneity, when you have a bit of a wild card in the audience, it can yeah. really um, you can really sort of um, not aggravate, but it really it can energise an audience, can't it? Yeah, yeah. It's all about the unpredictable. I think these live com- conversations events are, of course, unrehearsed, and so sometimes you know it can be terrifying getting to the audience question time, not knowing what might happen. But when it works, it is very energising. And to have that kind of sense of that finally you get to the audience engagement that is, can be really fun. And it can be incredibly insightful. When the questions are good, it can sometimes be the best part of the event. I've got to ask mm. you, has there been one that stuck in your mouth, a pretty bad situation? Yes. Last year I did um, have a really lovely guy, but he just he just kept on, on talking and rambling. And there was no, I don't think there was a question and it kind of took up <laughs> took up all the very the very small amount of question time that we had, um, and that was tricky because there were a lot of grumpy people afterwards who who were dying to ask a question. Oh, Although they didn't get to do that in the signing queue. Very good, good on you, Claire. Yeah. Thanks for that, and uh, a big thank you to my wonderful panelists this afternoon, uh, Ellie. Jones and Martin Bosley, thank you for uh, joining me on this afternoon. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Wallace. Absolutely. Same. Now, Checkpoint is next today. It's with Sonala Tawa, so stay tuned, of course, to Checkpoint and beyond on RNZ National.